Let's turn to the scriptures. Turn with me to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We want to speak on the subject, the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest. Now, I'm not, I'm not picking or choosing to speak on this because it's around that harvest time. But nevertheless, we'll speak on the law of the harvest for we need to know the law of the harvest in everything and all that we do. So the law of the harvest, let's just read the chapters, 10 verses in the chapter. Cast thy bread upon the waters for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south, toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, chapter 11. Did I not tell you the chapter? Sorry. Let's start again then. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, <laughs> verse 1. <laughs> Cast thy bread upon the waters, <laughs> for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, but he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As I knowest not what is the way of the spirit or how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed, in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether, they, whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Truly the light is sweet, and the pleasant thing it is to the, for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, Yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know, that, but know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Now, we're going to go through that chapter uh, step by step, so we'll keep it open there. But pray again. Father, take your word and again, Father, speak to our hearts and help us in our day-to-day -day situations. And even, Lord, help us to serve you and to walk with you. Lord, help us to hear you and to obey you. And we pray, Lord, even as we leave this Bible study tonight and we go through this chapter, that your people will chew over it, Father, as it were, like the cud. And, Lord, they would even think about it in their, in their quiet times. And, oh Lord, may it just mellow minds and hearts and speak deep to them, Father, that they would know, oh Lord, your word to them. We pray, Lord, even whoever listens to this, even online, Lord, that they would find some sort of guidance, some sort of strength or courage or instruction from it. Lord, we leave it in your hands even as we sow it into the ether through internet or whatever way it would go. We leave it in your hands, O oh God, that you would bring the increase. So we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The law of the harvest, and we know that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Or a woman, whatsoever a man or a woman sows, that's what you're going to reap back again. And in this, whenever we look at it, we have to go back to sowing. And we haven't time to go back to it. You can write it down or mark it or you can get the CD or listen to it later. But in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, when Noah comes off the ark, the first thing Noah does is when he gets out, he gives out. Chapter 7, he builds an altar unto the Lord. And he takes one of the clean animals and he sacrifices it. And by the way, remember this if you go into the book of Genesis that when you're reading coming up to Noah taking animals into the ark and you're going into chapters 6 into 7, remember that you'll read that God said the animals were to go in. We hear the little song two by two. 
But that's not the full story. The unclean animals were to go in two by two. The clean animals were to go in seven by seven. And people forget that. It was the unclean like the swine. Swine's still an unclean animal. It's got a sewer pipe down its leg to let all the gunge out that it withholds in its body. And you eat the pig. <laughs> and it has, uh, it has a, uh, a little worm that doesn't die. And it goes into the intestines. And it's even known to travel into the brains of men, some men and women and kill them. And it's the most unclean and the hardest to digest animal that's been created by God. It's the garbage dump of the created animal world. And God said it's an abomination. He says that animal is unclean. And people think they pray hocus pocus over it and it becomes clean. It does not. (laughs) A pig's still a pig at the end of the day. And so God says, bring, and it's not only pig, it's other animals. Shellfish are unclean too. They're the garbage disposal units of the bottom of the sea. So I don't eat eat any of them. Because God says they're unclean, I'd still not eat them. And people can argue with me, oh, well, pray over them. You can pray over them all you want. The Lord says they're unclean. I'm still going to say they're unclean. They are the garbage refusal dump of the earth. And they're the ones, the scavengers. But God says, take two unclean in. Seven clean. Seven, we're going to look at that number as well in a moment. Seven, and clean animals go into the ark. And why is that? Now think about it, why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because everyone thinks that it was that the law of God was only given by Moses. It was given by Moses in the codified sense from Mount Sinai. But the law of God was given from the fall in the Garden of Eden. Actually, it was given in the Garden of Eden. The Lord commanded them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then how did they know to sacrifice Cain and Abel? Abel brought the sacrifice of a lamb if there wasn't a law given by blood. How did they not know there was a clean animal to bring if there was no law? So there was a law, but it was codified at the time of Moses. Getting off the track here, I want to bring this back. And then, and then whenever you have the seven uh, clean animals on the ark, the seven were for one, for food that they wouldn't eat. Listen, if they ate the unclean animals then, you wouldn't have any unclean animals today because there only was one pig or two pigs going on the ark, you know. <laughs> Let's think about this. So they didn't eat the unclean animals. Seven was that they would have food. They would eat clean animals, lambs or whatever they had. And so they could eat clean animals. And also when Moses came, or Moses, Noah came off the ark, he built an altar. And what did he do? He sacrificed a clean animal unto God. That which only God would accept, like a lamb. So there was already a law given that they knew, but it was codified for Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai. So all of this was already there. And when he comes off, the idea is Moses, why am I saying Moses? Noah, <laughs> Moses was in an ark, but it wasn't the ark. He was in a bulrush ark. You know. and Noah comes off the ark and he gives out when he gets out. Now you notice that. Noah gives out. He gives, slays, sacrifices and worships God when he gets out of the ark. And when he gets out of the ark, he's giving out. You know what he's doing? He's sowing spiritually in worship onto Yahweh. And so whenever you and I at times are going through our rough times, and we're praying and we're praying, we're praying, we're praying, and suddenly uh, the ark comes of the ark comes to rest, and the, the waters of our rough times seem to assuage and they seem to go down. And the first thing we do, we get off and we breathe here. I'm glad that trial's over. I'm glad we're coming out the other end of that. But suddenly then, a lot of us find that when we do, we don't go to the altar. We don't sacrifice worship unto God. We tend to run on and do our own thing. Noah didn't. Noah gave out. He sowed into the kingdom, as it were. He sowed into God's spiritual kingdom by sacrificing in worship. And so there's a little... Uh, there's this little sidelight for us. So here we have the animals went in clean seven, unclean two by two. But the Lord says in Genesis 8 and 22 that there would be uh, seed in summer and winter, springtime harvest and seed and so on and sowing and reaping. And, and he says all of these things. You, you can read it in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22. It says, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not 
cease. Now, there's a promise from the Lord to Noah. And of course, we see those things happening today. So then, when we, we want to go on a little bit further here, just into this chapter, because we don't want to go too far back. But now that sowing and reaping has been taken spiritually, because he'd done it spiritually too. Noah came out and spiritually sowed. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1 says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Now, there's a couple of things we have to look at here. Casting bread. And there's, uh, there's some commentators say that this actually means even the, the stale bread that was thrown out. You know, some of you go maybe take the children down. We used to and feed the ducks with the bread. Apparently it's bad for them. You're not meant to do it, by the way. I didn't know that. <laughs> there was a few ducks have blown up in the air. They've been flying apart. It swells them out. I don't know. But, um, they, you know, you're taking your, your bread down to cast it and the ducks are getting it, really. But the idea here is there's a, there's a different connotation in this. Casting your bread means even if you think that this will do no good, still cast it. I'm going to say it again. Even if you feel what you have will do no good, still cast it in the name of the Lord. Cast it in children's lives. You know, you, you cast it in our own lives, cast it in our family life. Cast it unto the Lord and, and give out. Always give out. And even when you think this won't do any good, it's little. It doesn't matter, you give out. So cast your bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. That's a strange saying, because surely if you cast bread in the waters, it's going to soak up and sink. But the idea here is, is even in the impossibility, you feel uh, that I'm going to cast this little, and suddenly the water soaks it up, and the water causes it to sink, and it goes down even into the bottom, or wherever the river takes it and breaks it up. And you might see the impossibility of what can this do. The idea is leave it with God and see what he does with it. The idea is leave it with God and see him raise it up. You're sowing, you have to reap. The idea is whatever you're sowing, you have to reap from it. And so cast your bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Now, there's also another tense in this, not only spiritually uh, to uh, sowing in, in your family or in church or helping out and all that sort of sowing. Maybe you feel it's little, doing little. But in Revelation 17, if you want to turn just briefly with me, when we look at waters in the book of Revelation, there's a little telltale sign here. <clears throat> Revelation 17, and let your eye run down to verse 11. It says, And the beast that was and The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. Now, I haven't time to go into that. Notice in Numbers 7 and 8. This is the devil's 7 and 8. Okay? And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now notice this. This is where we're coming to. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Notice, here the waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, this is all prophetic. I can't go into it now. But we're looking here at this woman, this harlot. And this is the, uh, this is Romanism. This is, this is Rome. This is the papal Rome, coming from pagan Rome into papal Rome, sitting in many waters and now going out, and it's going out the religion around the world. And what they're doing is they're sowing among waters and say, well, we hear about, and there'll be no more sea in, 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 in God's kingdom or on the earth when Christ turns. That's not what that means. Of course there's going to be sea. He made the sea at the beginning. 
The sea means there's going to be no more unrest among the nations. That's the idea of the prophetic symbol of it. And so you can see the waters are peoples and nations. So when we cast our bread upon the waters, it means evangelize. Reach them. Cast your bread, and even though it's your workplace or where you are, and you may feel that you do little, and maybe it's impossible, and you're sowing, and it seems to sink and go into the mire, and dispersed, it's soaked up with all the water that's taken it, the people's taken it on, and they don't seem to be listening to it. Listen, it has to bear some fruit. It has to come back to you. And it may be a long time. It may be a long time, but it's a matter of casting it and leaving it with God. So we're cast your bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Listen, Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25. There is, that which, there is that that scattereth and yet increaseth. There is that which withholdeth more than is meat, but attendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Now here we see again, we think that the more we withhold, the more we retain, the more it will multiply. That's not God's way. That's not God's way. Listen, I'm not just talking, I'm talking about financial here, yes, but I'm not just talking about that. That's part of it. It's only a little of it. I'm talking about in everything we do, in our lifestyles. I'm talking about in where you are and what you do in work and whom you meet and in your families and out in the street or where out shopping or whatever. I'm talking about wrapping doors and coming to prayer meetings, even faithfulness to the house of God. And it's sowing, you're sowing, you're sowing into God's kingdom. Sowing in spiritual worship, singing and praising him in spite of people who are around you and what they would think of you. You're sowing all the time. And the idea here is that we think that we hold and we'll be able to maintain and gather up and we'll be so bountiful. The Bible says that's not God's way. He says there is that that scattereth and yet increaseth. Gives the idea of a man scattering seed where is it gone has fallen into the earth. Oh dear, it's away, I've none left. But see when the harvest comes, he goes and he says there's something to reap back and guess what? He gets the same to sow again. In other words, it, it starts to it, it, it starts to, to, to form a, a cycle where it keeps on going. And look, there's people that you'll sow into their lives, children you sow into their life. In fact, today, I was in um, the house, Joe, Joe's house, where he, he had passed away and I went to see his wife. And people are all in the house. And there was a, a lady sitting just over up to the right of me. And another pastor comes in and he was saying, oh, Ken, how are you? And we're talking away. And another one came in and we're talking away a bit. And next thing, he turned around and seen this lady. He says, oh, hello. And I can't remember the lady's name. I don't, I don't know her. And he says, would you believe it? And this is a retired pastor. He says, I used to teach her in Sunday school. And this woman's older and this woman's going on in God. And, and you know, for a while, apparently, as far as I can make out, this woman didn't go on in God. And he must have thought, well, there's another one away. But he had sowed into her in Sunday school. Now he's a retired man, and here's this woman sitting among all these Christians. You know, and so after many days, it's returned again. Sometimes we think it isn't doing anything. I think of Christina, you know, and I think of Ian and the youth. And, you know, I think of the Sunday school and Sarah and all the teachers there. I think of all these things, and I think of us in our own homes with our children. We feel, is this, are they taking this in? Are they, are they even listening? And listen, children take in more than you think. Alison and I used to take a, a, a youth meeting and there was, was about 150 children in it. And we had to separate it in the youth hall. It's down in Whitewell. And we had to separate it in the, the youth hall across the way. And it was on a Saturday. And so we ended up with about 60 children maybe or something. I can't remember when, how many there were at that time. But it was just one wee boy. And if I had a giant catapult, I'd have put him on it. <laughs> I thought, he, 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 I, it was all the grace I had, you know. He was, oh, every week. And he was, I'll be honest, he got to the point when he was coming, God forgive me, but I was saying, oh, no. <laughs> it was like, he was just a wee devil on legs, you know. And he, he disrupted everybody. 
He disrupted everybody. He even locked himself in one of the steel lockers in the changing rooms of the sports hall facility. And he locked himself in it. We had the doors locked so the kids couldn't get out. We had to get the police. We didn't know where he was. And we were searching the streets and the wee boys hiding in the locker, with the steel locker with the door locked. And we were, and we were, oh, we, we were distracted with it. And I remember one Saturday, I'd had enough. I thought, I'm going to launch this wee lot here. <laughs> and I says, come here, right. Called him John. Come here, John. I called him out. And there's a, a reception area at the front. And some of the leaders would have stood about there because that was where the door was. And the kids couldn't get out. There's only way out. So I bring them out. And I bring them out. And there's a desk, a high desk. And there was a tannoy on it because there was a sports complex there, you know. There was a tannoy on it, the microphone. And he's just, he was just impossible. And he's climbing over the top of this desk, walking on it and jumping about on it. And I thought, what am I going to do with this week, boy? So I just thought, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'll play along with him. And I lifted this tannoy microphone. I said, all right, John. I says, pretend I'm in an, you're in an interview and I have to interview you. You're, you're, uh, you're a, a big star. And he turned around and went, what? I says, pretend you're a big star and I interview you and you have to answer my questions. I says, so we're on the TV in an interview. Next thing he quietened down, he sat down on the top of the, of the, the desk. It was quite high, a high desk. So I says, well, John, um, where do you live? Answered back and forward. And I said, so what did you hear today then in there? And he was able to tell me everything he was taught over all them weeks. He knew everything. In fact, he knew more and clearer than some of the children were answering it during it. He was taking it in, I thought he was. And see, we're casting bread upon the waters. It was dissolving, disappearing. And I thought, this is duck food here. Yeah, this is the end of this, you know. And it shows you that you just keep sowing and see what God does at the end of it. You just have to keep on going. And don't, don't be weary in well-doing. And God will give us the increase in these things. So look at what it says then. And you see, there's that one that scatters and increaseth and it's that which withholdeth more than is meat. In other words, sometimes we get greedy and we hold more than we have and we need. And there's all that stuff we don't need and we hold it to ourselves when we could be helping others with it. So here's the idea of casting. Casting is an action. An action of a closed hand to an open hand. Think of a man with seed in his hand. Closed hand with seed in it. Open hand as he throws it. Closed hand with seed in it. Open hand as he throws it. So to, to give is to have a closed hand and an open hand. To sow is to have a closed hand, then an open hand. And an open hand is an outward manifestation of an open heart. Think about this now. An open hand is an outward manifestation of the open heart or the open spirit of the man and the woman who are doing such actions. You know, when you have your hand open and you're sowing right to the end that you have nothing else to give, you know what you're saying? I have nothing else to give, Lord. Then it's out of your control. It's out of your hand, in other words. It's out of your possession, and it's led fully, trusting in faith in him. Now, Lord, it's up to you. I can do no more. Have you ever felt like that? I have. I have. It's up to you, Lord. God set seed time and harvest to give us an idea that this would happen in the land, but also spiritually. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. In other words, the Father opened up his heart and showed it by the opening of his hand. He gave us his son. The richness of glory given up for the poverty of this earth. He sowed, and of course, he'll reap. Okay, listen to what Moorhead says. Uh, Moorhead, the commentator, listen to what he says about this. He was rich in possessions, power, homage, fellowship, happiness. He became poor in station, circumstances, 
And in his relationship with men, we are urged to give a little money, clothing, food. But he gave himself. Isn't that so true? But he, he gave himself. So, sowing and reaping. Notice what it says in verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. What on earth does that mean? Notice we heard seven and eight. Devil has a seven and an eight, doesn't he? Well, here God has a seven and an eight too. And to give the portion to seven and eight, we have to look at Bible numerology, biblical numerology. For example, let me run just briefly through these. Number one is the number of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and his name, one. Number two, two represents witness, confirmation. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Witness confirmation. There were two tablets of stone, for example, in the law. Two witnesses were told of the word of God. So this is witness and confirmation. And then number three. Number three is the adding of depth to what that confirmation and witness is. What do I mean? So if you take a flat surface and it's got, it's got length by breadth. That's your surface area. If you multiply the length by the breadth of something, you have just a flat surface area. But if you, multi- if you have length by breadth, by depth, or by height, if you're taking it from the ground up, by depth down, you have it threefold. That's what you call 3D, three dimensions. And so what that does is that gives you what you have a witness. You have your witnesses of length by breadth. Oh, yes, we have the witness. But the third witness, the number three, brings depth to it. For example, um, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, brought depth to the meaning of the resurrection. You see what it is? And it was witnessed of it by over 500 people at one go, and James and so on. And so we have depth of the resurrection, one, two, and three. God has revealed and manifest himself as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. It shows the depth of God. It shows this. So it's not just, he's not just a, a, a plain flat page. The Bible is, is words on a, now, and we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And so the, the idea of it is, but we only know him through the Bible we read. And the page in the ink is two-dimensional. But when the Spirit speaks, brings in the third dimension, what happens? Well, then comes alive to us, brings depth to the Word. You see? So you have the Father, great eternal Spirit, invisible, becoming visible in the Son. And then you have the Spirit as the Son returns to heaven. The, the, the Spirit of the Father is in us. And what does He do? He brings depth. Brings depth to your experience. And so he's, he's witnessing this to us. Does that make sense to you? So the number three is, is important for depth of witness. Number four, number four is the number for creation. For example, you have four winds of the earth, four points of the compass, and you have four to do with the seasons. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, or spring, summer, autumn, winter, as we would say. You have four of the, the uh, four of the seasons. So that, that speaks of creation. Five is the number of grace. Now, I think everyone knows that one. Five is the number of grace. And here's the wonderful thing about grace. Number five is four plus one equals five. Now, that wasn't a big hard sum. So four plus one equals five. Think about this now. Four, the number of creation. Plus one, the number of God. One God getting uh, involved in creation and falls in the fallen creation brings what? Brings grace. That's five. There were five pillars or porches when the man who was willing to go into the water, but there was no one to lift him in when he met Christ. Grace met him at the place of five porches. So the number five is very important. Five smooth stones David took out and God by grace slew the giant in the first attempt. You know what the other four were for? Because Goliath had four other brothers. Goliath had four other brothers. So David says, Lord, 
there are no chances here. <laughs> and you know when Goliath was hit with that stone in the head that knocked him down dead? You know what the first thing he says when that stone entered his head? A thing like that never entered my head before. <laughs> <laughs> Goliath was the only man... <laughs> Goliath was the only man who was a stone harrier when he was dead than what he was when he was alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh dear, it's getting worse. I think it's time I went to bed for a while. So five is the number of grace. Six is the number of man. Adam was created, man was created on the sixth day. Six is the number of man. And of course, then whenever you're... Um, you come to number seven. Seven is God's perfect number. That means perfection, completeness. Now think about this. So six days God labored, as it were. Six days God created, as you'd say. And the seventh day he rested. Completion. Okay? Completion. And we have, of course, Monday to Saturday. And then, of course, we have our Sunday, but when you go back in the biblical times, our Sabbath is actually on a Saturday. Okay, at the risk of getting into a theological debate online, I'll say this. <laughs> the Sabbath is really still a Saturday. <laughs> it's the Christian rest. So, so, uh, Christian rest, or the Lord's day, is the Sunday. So when we say Sabbath, I know people say, oh, we're going to meet on the Sabbath. I don't argue with people over it, but at the same time, the real Sabbath is sorry, God never changed that, that. But the Lord's then, the new covenant was on the Sunday. So that makes us then move from seven to eight. So we have seven here. Seven is completion. And then eight, he says. Notice what it says. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. What does that eight stand for? The number eight in Scripture let me see if I can get this right now. It speaks of resurrection. Christ was raised on the first day of the week. Isn't that right? That's number one. Ah, but after seven days on an eighth day, he was raised from the dead. Sunday would be their first day, but on the eighth day, he was raised from the dead. So it's the first day of the week. Now, the eighth day is now the first day. For example, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles would have been on the, the, the last day, the great day of the feast, as it says in John chapter 7. The last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus went to the Feast of Tabernacles. And what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles? That's when they, at the end of the, the Tabernacles, they built booths, and they camped out in booths to remind themselves of their travels through the wilderness coming out of Egypt. On the eighth day, they were in the temple, and what they did was they took great golden vials, and they filled them with water, and the blood that was shed from all the sacrifice that was over the altars, they, it was a solemn assembly, and as they walked up, the priests walked up, and everything was quiet and very solemn, and, and when they poured out the vials of water over the altar, it started washing down with the blood. The blood and the water came out. Sounds so familiar. The altar of blood and water. That's what happened when Jesus had his side driven. There came forth out blood and water. And what happened was they lifted up these uh, shofar trumpets and they started blowing them all through. And there was a great crescendo of praise went up. Everybody went, uh, and the way commentators say it, they were ecstatic with praise. The whole place, oh, at the time when Jesus was there, all the Jews were going uh, uh, ecstatic in praise and they were blowing these shofars. And, but that's when Jesus comes in John chapter 7, verse 35. And he says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And you see, he went on that great day of the feast, which was the eighth day. Now notice what he was saying. You have your religion. You have your ecstatic praise. You've got the old uh, blood and water here from the sacrifice. But this isn't what cuts it anymore. Come on to me. The resurrection of spirits on new birth. This is what I mean. So does that make sense to you? Number eight. I'm not going any further than that. Because time's already gone and I haven't got through the second verse. So that's the number eight. 
So whenever we look at it, it says, give a portion to seven. When you think you're at, well, that's it done. We've done it well. It's completed. It's perfect. He says, no, no, no. Keep sowing until you see resurrection. Keep giving until you see things happen. In other words, keep praying into things until it comes to pass. Keep, keep praying into that thing and into the other one and for this one and that one until you see a change, until you see something happening. And listen, it's after many days and many years even. And you keep praying into it. Keep giving into something. Keep whatever it is. I'm not talking. I've, again, let me say, you know me. I don't preach money. I'm not talking about money. Yes, finances. You want to give finances somewhere or you're doing it and you want to give the house of God or whatever you're doing it, that's fine. But I'm not preaching money. I'm preaching whatever the Holy Ghost is laying in your heart. Sowing into the lives of people, into children, into adults, into teenagers, into wherever outside, going around the houses, wrapping doors, praying with the sick. Whatever it is, you keep on sowing. And when you think, well, Lord, this is bound to be it. We're almost at perfect end here. He says, keep going until resurrection comes. And this is what he says, for thou knowest not what evil shall be on the earth. You keep going because there's enough evil out there. Simple as that. You keep going on. You keep trusting because there's enough evil out there. There's enough evil out there that's going to want to try and hold you back and withstand you to your face. There's enough evil that's going to want to bring you down. There's enough evil that's going to want to slay you. It's going to want to stop the work of God. It's going to want to hinder you in what God's doing in you. And he's going, no, no, even the seven's perfect. Keep going until there's resurrection power through this. Push her on through. Don't be through praying, but rather pray through. Don't be through praying, but rather pray through. The theme is here that if the clouds are full of rain as well, look what it says in verse 3. It carries a theme through here. It's the way it's written in the, in the Hebrew. There's a theme carries through. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south, toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Now, first of all, we have here the clouds full of rain and they'll empty themselves in the earth. When you and I see a big black cloud coming, you know fine right it's going to empty somewhere, doesn't it? It just might empty on your house. And sometimes I feel, I don't know about you, there's a big black cloud always emptying out in my house. <laughs> you know, but I, we're all right, we're undercover, you know, so we're, not, we're fine. But the idea, is, the idea is that you can see these black clouds and they can start to put you off. Black clouds of trouble, black clouds of strife, black clouds of worry, black clouds of stress, black clouds of fear. And those black clouds are coming and you're saying, oh, see if I keep going out here and keep going, if I keep going on here, this is bound to have a deluge in me here. And the Lord says, you never mind the deluge. I've already prepared your ark. I've told you how to get through it. You press on in. You press on in. And so here, if the clouds are full of, be full of rain and empty themselves upon the earth. Now notice, if the tree fall toward the south, toward the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall be. Now there's people who argue about this point, debate about this point, to say that this is about the salvation of a soul and the condition a person dies in. I would see that, actually. You know, if it, in other words, if a tree falls to the south, it doesn't come alive again by itself and stand upright. If, it, if a tree dies to the north or whatever way it falls, it'll lie there and rot, in other words. And sometimes in our own lives, there is a spiritual context in this where those who die without Christ, whatever way they die, are those who die with Christ, whatever way they die, well, that's the way they are. Saved they're lost. So in other words, if we have, in Revelation 22, let's look at it in verse 11. Revelation chapter 22, coming right to the end of our Bible, right down to the last chapter. Verse 11. Notice what he says. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. So in other words, whatever way we fall, 
i.e. die. Should Christ tarry, that's the way we'll stand before God. We know this man, Joe, who, who has passed away yesterday, godly man, served the Lord, 92 years of age, and the Lord took him home yesterday. Godly man, loved the Lord many, many, many years, ran the meetings, and I've preached for him many times in the meetings too, and, and he was such a, a, a godly person in the sense that he loved the Lord. So as he has fallen, so he will be in the resurrection. So where do we find this? Just flick over with me to Revelation uh, chapter 20, please. Let your eye run down to verse 5. Tell you what, let's go to verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who are these? These are the ones you'll read in First Thessalonians 4. Keep your finger in there and go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Just keep your finger in there now so you don't lose it. I'm going to come back to it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, But I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or who have died, in other words, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we, we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Or in other words, we'll not be with Christ before them because they have died. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's those who have died in Christ, saved. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Now, what Paul is saying there is, when Christ returns, now listen, there's no secret rapture. We're hearing it everywhere. There is no secret rapture. There's nothing secret about it. Christ is coming. Christ will break the clouds. Christ will call the dead from their graves. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we, if we're alive, or if we're dead, we'll rise before those who are alive at his coming. But if we're alive and remain, we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And we will return to rule and reign with him on the earth. Now I go to Revelation chapter 20. At the end of verse 4, it says, And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is who he's speaking of. Okay? Verse 5. But the rest of the dead, who are they? They're those who have died without Christ. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection, John? The one Paul tells us of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead in Christ rising is the first resurrection. Ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth. And then the dead who are not in Christ, they're resurrected. Look at what it says. This is the first resurrection Verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to gather to battle, the number of whom is as the sound of the sea. Now, for time's sake, let your eye run down. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, notice the word second death is mentioned twice in this chapter. First of all, in verse 6, 
Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, shall reign with him a thousand years. So that's you and I in Christ. We will rule and reign with him, priests unto God and of Christ, and the second death. What is the second death? The lake of fire that we read about here in verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death and hell is actually death in the grave. How can people think of hell and the thing burning? How can burning be cast into the lake of fire? The word here for hell is the grave and the region of the dead. There's no more death, in other words. So the word hell here is not hell as you think of, of hell burning fire. There is a lake of fire. Uh, if you want to call that hell as we think it, then that's fine. But the word hell here means grave. No more death. But the second death is here. This is the second death. And whosoever was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that's the dead who are not in Christ. You see that? But when you go to verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such a second death hath no power. See the word power there? It's the word exousia. And, you know, when we think of, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The word power there is dunamis, dynamite, an inherent power. So when you preach it, as I said, and I think it was a Sunday I said it, I preached that, I preached that many times on Sunday, I didn't know where, who I was preaching to or where I was. But on, on, on Sunday I said about the inherent power of the word of God is when we preach it and the Holy Spirit lights a fuse, bang, explodes. You know, it's, it's powerful to bring resurrection, spiritual resurrection, call men and women from death and from, uh, from that broad road to destruction. And, and it's able to turn lives around. So that's exousia, powers, like, uh, so, pardon me, it, it's uh, dunamis where we get dynamite. But the word here, on such the second death hath no power. The word power there isn't uh, a dunamis, but exousia. I know what it means. It means right, privilege, authority, license, so you and I who are on Christ, we are uh, in Christ. According to, to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 12, he says, And to them that believed in his, uh, he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. The word there for power is also exousia. So those of us who believe in his name have the exousia. In other words, you and I now have the right, the power, the privilege, and the license to say we belong to Jesus. We are his children. We are spiritually resurrected and here is the actual sowing of sowing right through. Christ was sowed right through into the earth as a grain or a corn of wheat that falls to the ground that it would multiply that we would be his harvest when he went to the tomb and rose again. And so the power on John 1 and 12 that makes us the sons and daughters of God, that word power is exousia, right power, right privilege, authority, and license. And when you think, well, we, that's who we are, and we go right down and we travel through and Jesus returns and whether we're dead and we're caught out of, called out of our graves or whether we're alive and remain, when Jesus returns, he's going to catch us all together. We're going to be changed. Now, he doesn't come at a moment. People say, oh, he comes. It's like a, a moment twinkling of an eye. The Bible doesn't tell you that. The Bible says we shall be changed in a moment. So he comes and the earth hears and trumpets are blowing and dead are rising out of the grave. I don't know what's secret about this. And, and the, the dead are rising out of the grave. It couldn't be any more, uh, it couldn't be more louder than, 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 than we could ever imagine. And, and at this point, the dead in Christ are raised first. We are alive and remain, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We return as, we return to, to the earth for the bride and the bridegroom to consummate the marriage in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there we rule and reign with Christ, kings and priests unto God. Now, that's for a thousand years. Satan is bound and he's cast into prison, as it were, a spiritual prison. And there's peace. Christ rules with a rod of iron. All the nations that were against him and there's righteousness fills the earth. After that fills the earth, a thousand years are up and Satan is loosed a little. Why? Because of those who are paying homage to Jesus just because they feel forced to. Do you know those people now who pay homage to Jesus because they think it's just they feel forced to? It's, it's a religious thing. But in this, those who are not Christ will turn again on Christ and he will then just cast them all in the lake of fire. And the dead out of Christ will be raised and judged then too. So when we're reading this, those of us who are saved on this, the second death hath no power. When you and I are there and people are 
go into this lake of fire. And it's not a nice thought. It's a horrible thought. It's terrible. But whenever we think of this, it means the second death hath no power in us. The lake of fire and the second death has no right to claim you, in other words. Think about it. The second death has no right to claim you because you know Christ, because you belong to him. The second death has no authority over you to call you. The second death has no right over you. The second death has no claim or license over you. That's the word power. The the second death hath no power. So you and I, we're not worried about this second death. We're not worried about being judged and being cast into a lake of fire. You know why? Because we're in the first resurrection at the coming of Christ because we believe he shed his blood for us and died, that he was sowed into the earth, that he would reap a harvest. He shall see the travail of the soul and shall be satisfied. And we are his. So we don't worry about the second death. It has no right claim or power over those who trust in him. Imagine like we have got through three verses. Let me read this not finished there. That's it done. You have to go. Listen to So it says here in verse 3, the tree fall toward the south or toward the north. In the place where the tree falls, there it shall be. William MacDonald in his commentary said this, Once a tree is felled, it remains a fallen monarch. Its destiny is sealed. I'm going to read it again. Once a tree is felled, it remains a fallen monarch. Its destiny is sealed. Now, a sobering thought. Should we not be sowing even more? Because there are many trees being felled every day. And their destiny is sealed. Think about this. If this doesn't make us evangelists, I don't know what what will. So we sow in the lives of our children. We sow in the lives of other children in the clubs and meetings. And we sow in the lives of every man and woman, the waters, casting bread on the waters. And don't give up and don't lose heart. You know why? Because their destiny may be sealed. But as you sow, leave it with God and see what he does in resurrection power. Sow on the seven, give the eight. Keep going till you see something change. Till we receive of it. John Ray, the poet, says, a tree falls, so must it lie. As a man lives, so must he die. As a man dies, so must he be all through the years of eternity. Sobering, isn't it? It's the law of the harvest. And that's why the Lord says, so keep going. 